What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If that is you and you have a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to chat with you on this uh, beautiful Monday afternoon. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening in Uruguay, you will want to call 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. That's available 24-7. The address ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burst, not Jeff Person. Mm. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. You see, this is uh, muscle memory, the, the dark side of muscle memory. Anyway, Rich handles our uh, social media for the program. If you have a question uh, that you would like to ask via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both those platforms right now. Just put it in the comments box, if you would, please. Rich will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio and hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. I think Jeff Burson is probably drinking Chianti on the beach. You know, he probably is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another story. Jeff, for those of you just joining us, Jeff retired after, I believe, 37 years of uh, faithful service to yeah. EWTN. So, so raise a glass to Jeff Burson. Absolutely. Uh, good to be back with you, good my friend. Good to be back, yes. Uh, yeah, I was in uh, California for a couple of days for the Los Angeles Religious Educators Congress, and a lot of people uh, knew about EWTN, but they didn't know about EWTN radio. Well, and so we got to uh, answer a lot of questions for educate folks. Educate them about that important ministry? Absolutely. Here's an email, um, speaking of other countries, from Singapore. This is from Jared in Singapore. Good day. Dr. Anders, you have said that the Mass is about offering up our sacrifices and something of value to God. The typographical example is the sacrificing of animals in the Old Testament. The act of offering the animal by killing the calf is a loss to me and is offering something of value to God. So my question is, how are we giving up something of value by offering the body and blood of Christ? I never owned it like I would have owned the calf. There is no loss on my part, so what exactly is that something of value that we're giving up? Thanks, Jared in Singapore. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. The thing that's that the 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 loss is, of course, the loss of Jesus's life on Calvary, yeah. which is memorialized at, in the Mass. So the the person who made the 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 greatest gift here is Jesus himself. Sure. We are the beneficiaries of that. We're the beneficiaries of Christ's self-offering. So it's not, you know, it's it's not like equal parts Jesus and part equal part us. Not at all. I mean, Jesus is doing the lion's share of the work here, mm-hmm. and we are the beneficiaries. And so he, you, do we cooperate? Yeah, we cooperate. But a friend of mine gave this illustration one time I thought it was very useful. Imagine uh, Dad is doing yard work in the backyard, and he's got to push a wheelbarrow up the hill. You know, it's, you know, filled with rocks or something. Sure. And his uh, his four year old son comes by and wants to quote unquote help, <laughs> and we all know about when the four year old wants to help at yeah. the at the task. You know, it's sometimes you're like, 
I might be better off if Junior didn't help, mm-hmm. right? But uh, Dad wants to to dignify Junior's cooperation. So he says, okay, come help. Here's what you're going to do. You put your hand on the back of the wheelbarrow. I'm going to hold the handles. You push on the back. Of the wheel. Together we'll push it up the hill. Now, ask yourself a question. Did, did Junior actually put some horsepower some horsepower into the <laughs> wheelbarrow? Yes, he did. Was it determinative? No way. Yeah. But it was real. Yeah. And so our participation in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and then the, the representation of that in the memorial of the Mass is real participation, and it's, it's sanctifying for us. Um, but Jesus is still the one that's doing the lion's share of the work. Absolutely. Uh, Javier, thank you so much for uh, listening to us in Singapore. Good to hear from you today. Here's one now from uh, Javier. Hello, Dr. Anders. I'm writing in from Nashville, listening on your podcast. Thanks for your show. My question is about the role of men and women in religious life. I suppose that only men are called to be priests because God became a man to be our high priest and appointed men, not women, to be his apostles. Could you please expand on that and how that differs from a Protestant view, as it seems like a lot of congregations have accepted women as pastors or preachers? Thank you and God bless. Javier. Yeah, thanks. So the the one place where I would differ with your explanation is it's not that the Incarnation has somehow privileged the male sex, right? And I think that's what you were suggesting. And the Catholic understanding of the Incarnation is that Jesus assumed a human nature. Now, Mm -hmm. he he happened to be biologically male, but the entirety of the human race is included in that, right? So he Mm -hmm. is—his incarnation sanctifies males as well as females equally, and there's no privilege in that respect. Um, The—restricting the the priesthood to men has much more to do with Christ's role as a priest and his relationship to the body of Christ, which is the Church, and— represented as his bride, uh, he is the bridegroom to the bride. So there's a you know feminine aspect and a masculine aspect mm-hmm. there. Both of those are figured in the in the, the persons of the members of the church. So I mean, females are every bit as much a part of the people of God and and are represented in that in that dynamism and that in that imagery as sure. as as the male part, you know, which is figured by the priest and the sacrifice of the mass. So but it's not because Jesus it's not because Jesus uh, say only assumed the masculine gender. That'd be yeah. the wrong way of conceiving it. But your your question again was contrasting that with the Protestant view, and in my experience, there are basically two Protestant approaches to the question of of uh, of of uh, uh, human sex and ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is what I would consider to be a kind of a chauvinistic view, which is just that males are intrinsically entrusted with leadership and authority, and uh, and so that would be the the you know the kind of chauvinistic uh, uh, you know male headship view, mm-hmm. and they would extend that beyond the pastorate to things like family life, and some of them would even extend it to civil government, and you know having sexist claims about women not being involved in civil life, and mm-hmm. I've definitely seen that in Protestantism, and then there'd be the opposite extreme, which is to just say a kind of a strict egalitarianism where there is no differentiation, and women are also ordained to to sacred ministry. So the Catholic Church takes neither of those positions. Okay. Well, we do appreciate uh, your email, Javier. And if you would like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Here we are on the first Monday of Lent, and lines are open for you to ask those Lent-related questions or any questions about the Catholic faith. 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Stay with us.
It's called a communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders? Maybe you would like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. As we're all uh, thinking about things like this, it might be a great time for you to uh, open up a little dialogue with us here. 833-288-3986. You know, EWTN's Religious Catalog is your online destination for gifts and holy reminders for Lent and Easter. This includes apparel. I've seen some of these shirts. Oh, they're fantastic. Uh, Books, devotionals, jewelry, mugs, so much more. Buy Catholic Shop EWTN rc.com today. And by the way, you can now receive regular emails from EWTN's religious catalog. Visit EWTN.com and click on the word subscribe. We're going to get to the phones in just a moment here. Our number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Looks like we have four lines open right now. Here's a question from Dennis watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Uh, let's get to it here. Here we go. Uh, Dr. Anders, my daughter and my brother-in-law have committed grave matter to me. They are unrepentant and have not contacted me for many years. Any suggestions? That's from Dennis watching on YouTube. Yeah, thanks. I do have a suggestion, and and that is that I, I think if they are not in contact with you, it means that you are not a force like at, at work in their life. You're yeah. not present to them, and that may not be your fault, but it's a reality. And therefore, the Church's counsel about admonishing the sinners probably needs to be considered, and that is you admonish sinners when, first of all, the matter is grave. You say the matter is grave. I'll take your word for, for that. Yeah. Secondly, um, you have a well-founded expectation that the person that you're admonishing will listen to you. And third, you're the person who's best suited to make the admonition. And so even if there's been a sort of grave uh, moral fault here, sounds like they're not inclined to listen to you and that you're not very well placed to make this admonition. Mm-hmm. So I would, not, I would not address the question of their objective moral faults at all. And if you want to have any kind of outreach to them, it needs to, it needs to be trying to establish a positive rapport so that you're someone that they listen to and someone who's well-placed to make that admonition. And that, you know, that's probably going to begin with things like, you know, birthday and Christmas cards and, you know, friendly greetings and showing them that you're a person of goodwill who's interested in them for more reasons than simply uh, people to be rebuked. Absolutely. Dennis, thanks for watching us on YouTube. Also watching this afternoon is Mark. Mark says, Dr. Andrews, would you say that apologetics is a suitable way that men could be more involved in the church, attendance at Mass, and have fatherhood influence over the family? Um, Not really. No, I wouldn't say so. And the reason why uh, I think could be summed up by a, a child of mine who several years ago said to me, to his father, the apologist, he said, Daddy, you know, you're right about everything and nobody cares. <laughs> right? And that's the problem that you fall into when, yeah. you, when you kind of privilege or reduce the Catholic faith to questions of who's right and who's wrong and who can give the most compelling answer and, you know, that kind of the need to be right and persuade others. And I, I understand that. That's what I do for a living. But but that that's one thing in, in radio ministry or, or writing when you're kind of writing to a general and anonymous audience. It's a very another thing when you're dealing with your own family members who really just totally do not care that you have the world's greatest argument for the truth of the doctrine of transubstantiation. Like, they that's they would rather go play baseball with you in the backyard or play chess yeah. or go to a movie or whatever it is that, you know, or get help with their homework or, or have you watch their gymnastics meet or whatever it might be, right? Um, there's a Catholic author, 
Father Mark recommended him to me years ago, a fellow by the name of James Stinson, wrote a book called The Father Protector, wrote many uh-huh. of this as well. He was a Catholic school headmaster, private Catholic school headmaster for many years, and he noticed that some families tended to do well and some tended to do badly, and he wanted to make a study of what are the successful Catholic families all doing in common. And uh, would you believe it that the prevalence of apologetics in the household was not a predictor of how well the family was doing morally and spiritually and psychologically? And what really was determinative was... um, you know, did, did the house consist in a family of consumers who were interested in their own private worlds, or did the family form a coherent unit that was committed joyfully to some common project, not necessarily an explicitly religious one? And, and as an example, he remarked that the children of entrepreneurs, like business people, entrepreneurs, yeah, yeah tended to do better in life than other kids because when a family had a family business, it was that kind of an enterprise. It was a sort of thing that everybody could get on board with and they could do their part and they could share in a common work. And so it'd be an opportunity not only for the kids to work and exercise the virtues, but to observe their parents exercising the virtues. Uh-huh. And in that sense of kind of joyful, playful participation in that common project, he called them sporting adventure families. Now, if you're not an entrepreneur, you'd have to come up with analogs to that. So to just pick one at random, uh, you know, maybe you're the family that that uh, goes camping together. You you know, you, you dig the fire pit, you dig the latrine, your job is to put up the tent, right? Now we're going to have this activity. You know, it's something that you can do in your life where you bring the family together around a common set of virtue-building activities, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a common project. And, of course, your Catholic faith infuses all that, right? Um, but uh, the the idea that the primary way we should live or express our Catholic faith is through intellectual activity, you know, particularly persuasive or, you know, r- rhetoric like apologetics, I think is something that is fairly recent in human history and, and, and you know, derives from a particular cultural moment in the life of the Catholic Church and maybe doesn't capture the realities of human formation and childhood development sure. and relationships because at the end of the day, the purpose of apologetics Apologetics is not an end in itself. It's to bring us to a particular manner of life, the the Catholic way of life, the Christian way of being in the world, mm-hmm. which is ultimately all about the dignity of human persons, relationships, you know, families, virtues. And so those are the things you have to emphasize. So apologetics obviously is useful. I wouldn't do it if it weren't useful, and it can help people, you know, get over the hump, kind of cover the bridge to their Catholic faith or to help, you know, make an irrational act of faith. And, mm-hmm. and it's nothing wrong with dads taking an interest in that and reading it and being ready to answer questions that their kids may have. But it's thinking of that as your primary mode of engagement in family and community life, I think is to really put the cart before the horse and, or that's probably the wrong metaphor. It's really to just kind of, it's not to get the hierarchy of value straight in your in your vocation. Yeah, you remember Rocky and Bullwinkle. I, I do. Well, you remember Mr. Know-It-All. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You, you don't want to be look, that. I'm speaking from experience here. As somebody who's done too much apologetics with his own family, <laughs> right? And if I had to do over again, there, you know, the, the, the things that I don't regret in raising my own kids, who are pretty much all grown now, uh-huh. are things like, you know, I had two sons that were state champion chess players. Like, I don't regret any of the time I spent investing in their chess tournaments and their chess classes and, you know, their team building and all mm-hmm. the relationships that we had, and, you know, their friends that we had over to play chess. And, and that 
that was just all 100% positive in oh, their yeah, life. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, th- those are the kinds of things that you find something like that you can really pour yourself into. That, that that's Those are the experiences as a father. And is that connected to my Catholicism? Yeah, because it's teaching things like the virtues of justice and perseverance and temperance and, sure. and respect for others and following the rules. I mean, there's all kinds of virtues to be gained in those sorts of environments. They don't have to be apologetical. Mark, thanks so much uh, for watching us on uh, YouTube this afternoon. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, leading off with Ron in Michigan watching us on EWTN television. Hello, Ron. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I've been a Catholic for 95 years. I'm a Gadiah Catholic, and I, I, I hear Mary say in her canticle that her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior, and I can't figure out the difference between the soul and the spirit. Could you straighten me out on that, Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there are some Christian traditions, other than the Catholic, that try to make a big deal out of the difference between soul and spirit. And they will assert that they're two, like, fundamentally different kinds of things. Uh That has not been the, the... dominant position in Catholic philosophy or Catholic theology. And the Catholic view of the human person is that humanity is a single organism that has a kind of twin aspect. There is a bodily aspect and then there's a, a spiritual aspect. And and so we're just we're a dualistic reality, not a not we're not a tripartite reality. Okay. And when sometimes when you find soul and spirit used and when they do seem to be differentiated, we can we can draw this distinction, but it's really a notional distinction, not a not a not a real one, not an ontological distinction. Soul, the technical meaning of soul in philosophy, is whatever it is that makes a living thing to be alive. So you look at the nature of the human person, whatever about our corporeal nature and our incorporeal nature that causes us to be alive, that's what the word soul speaks to. Okay. And the word spirit speaks to that same aspect, but under the description of how it relates to God. Ah, okay. Okay. But they're really describing the same reality, but just from two different points of view. Now, in the canticle that you mentioned from the Blessed Virgin Mary, there there's a specific literary convention in view, and that is Hebrew poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry, the, 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 style is, the, the style of Hebrew poetry is not to use rhyme. That's not where the beauty was found. It was in these parallelisms um, where the author would state something and then say the same thing again, either identically or in a slightly modified form. And the, 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 the trick of language is to come up with a poetic, beautiful way of stating the same thing twice but using different language. Um, and, uh, you know, so my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, says the same thing using different words. That's just a feature of Hebrew poetry. Ron, thanks so much for your call. Glad to hear from you in Michigan. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. The one line open, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Monday afternoon, first Monday of Lent here on EWTN Radio. Going now to Hank in Lenexa, Kansas, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hank, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi there. I have a papacy question today. Okay. So if the successional, successional character of Peter's primacy was part of apostolic tradition, well-taught and preserved, 
why were there so many educated Christians who contested papal primacy, especially in the centuries leading up to the East-West schism? Oh, thanks. yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So one thing that you will find consistently, uh, East and West, for you know the first thousand years, um, is the conviction that Rome possesses some kind of primacy, um, at the very least that Rome is the final court of appeal for matters of theological or doctrinal or even canonical disagreements, uh -huh. and that Rome enjoys that primacy in virtue of Peter uh, having passed his primacy specifically to the Bishop of Rome. And so you can find writers from the East and the West, the, the Greek tradition, the Syriac tradition, uh, even Arabian Christianity, that will, you know, just openly and freely acknowledge the Bishop of Rome is the successor of St. Peter, and it's on this basis that everybody has to have reference to him and his doctrine, and that, that kind of language is universal in the mm -hmm. tradition. And uh, naturally, I think it's quite, for me it seems quite natural, um, people that fell outside of his patriarchate, that were not under his sort of immediate temporal sphere of influence, uh, particularly in Byzantium, where you know Byzantium became so much more politically and economically powerful than than Rome, um, would bristle at the idea of taking orders from uh, some some redneck pope, you know, yokel <laughs> over there in Hicksville in in Italy, you know, after the seat of the empire had already moved to Byzantium, and so at the Council of Constantinople in 381, there were attendees at the council that said, we've got a brilliant idea. Here's a great idea. So Rome used to be the, the head of the church, but obviously that was because Rome was the head of the empire. Now Constantinople's the head of the empire, so let's move the primacy to Constantinople. That argument got made at the Council of Constantinople, and then it sank without a trace because it was so obviously not on the basis of its connection to the empire that sure. Rome had possessed the mm -hmm. primacy. It was rather because of her connection to Peter and Paul. And so that, that idea got floated. And I think the motive is, is plain. These were, you know, these were Byzantine nationalists who had a nationalist motive for opposing the Bishop of Rome. I think another reason is that the fact that Rome is the, uh, uh, has the primacy does not by any stretch of the imagination guarantee that Rome will use it well. Yeah. And so, I mean, the complaint of Byzantium is that Rome has abused its authority for 2,000 years and has, you know, treated uh, these other dioceses with disrespect. And so, I mean, that's manifestly true. And so you, you want to hack somebody off and get them on the search for some justification to undermine your authority? Start treating them nastily. <laughs> and and so that's why, you know, 1054 really wasn't the end of the United Church. It really was the Fourth Crusade mm. and the sack of Constantinople in the 13th century when uh, when the Byzantines finally said, we've had it with you crazy Latin rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There you go. Hank, uh, does that answer your question, sir? Uh, yes, it does. Thanks. All yeah, right. It. Thanks so much for your call. Our phone number here at EWTN's Call to Communion, 833 288-EWTN. We have one line open right now. You can snag it by calling 833-288-3986. Again, if you're listening outside of North America, dial 1-205-271-2985. Or if you prefer, 
shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We also have a couple of questions standing by from uh, Blue Bear on YouTube and also Chris in New Jersey on YouTube. We're going to answer those in the last half of our program. We'll also be talking with Antoinette, a first-time caller from West Virginia, also Barbara in Rye, New Hampshire, and whoop, one, two lines open right now. Wow, better get busy. 833-288-EWTN. Busy phones on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on this uh, first Monday of Lent. Our phone number here for Call to Communion, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Antoinette now, a first-time caller from West Virginia, listening on WSJE. Hello, Antoinette. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Um, I was wondering what was the, um, I don't know if you call it explanation or what, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he said, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. So um, I don't hear a lot of that being said in the Catholic doctrine. Can, can you add to that? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. So Catholic doctrine teaches emphatically that regeneration or new birth or being born again is uh, is essential for salvation. That is absolutely Catholic doctrine, 100%, 100%. And, uh, and so what does that mean when Jesus makes that statement? Well, it's elaborated multiple places in the Bible. Um, for example, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we die with Christ in baptism and are reborn with him again to new life through the resurrection. Um, St. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that it is baptism that now saves us. Uh, in Titus, Paul talks about the washing of regeneration through the word. And so every time this concept of regeneration is raised in the Bible, it's associated with water and specifically with baptism. St. Peter tells the crowds at Pentecost, they say, what must we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's the consistent teaching of sacred scripture. And the interesting thing is, if you study the history of this doctrine, not just in the Bible, but throughout throughout church history, you'll find that the earliest Protestant theologians, like John Calvin, like Martin Luther, uh, yeah, of course, in the Anglican tradition, Cranmer and all the rest of them, they continued to affirm that regeneration occurs at baptism. That was the that was the consistent Protestant teaching. But John Calvin specifically, the, the Frenchman John Calvin, who became the leader of the Reformation in Geneva in the 1540s, he added a wrinkle. He added a wrinkle to the doctrine. And here was the wrinkle. See, the Catholic position and the Lutheran position and the Orthodox position, and I would argue the biblical position, is that everyone who is baptized is regenerated, but not all the regenerated persevere to salvation. Mm. Okay. Right? That okay. was the that's that's been the consistent teaching. Everybody gets regenerated who's baptized. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to go to heaven. It means you've got the grace you need to go to heaven, but you've got to cooperate with that grace. And that was everybody's position, right? In in ancient history, it's everybody's position, everybody's position in the Reformation, right? Here's what Calvin introduced, and this was very novel. Nobody before Calvin said this. Calvin said, well, yeah, baptism regenerates, but not everyone. Because he distinguished so strongly between the elect and the reprobate, the predestined and the damned. He says, 
baptism is when you get the goods, so to speak, but not everybody gets them. And, Calvin argued, the small subset of people who get regenerated in baptism will necessarily persevere to the end. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Lutherans, the Orthodox, the Catholics said, you get regenerated in baptism, but you don't necessarily persevere unless you cooperate. Calvin said, if you're regenerated in baptism, you will necessarily persevere, and not everybody gets regenerated. And so it raised a doubt in the mind of the Calvinists within the Protestant movement, how do I know I'm one of the people in whom baptism worked, in which it sort of took hold, if you will. And Puritanism, which was a 17th century Protestant movement, answered that question in a number of ways but basically said we need to derive certain Mm -hmm. tests to discern the work of the Spirit in our life so we can know that we're people in whom baptism worked, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And Puritans gave different answers. So there were some Puritans, like Thomas Hooker of Massachusetts, who argued, well, you you know because your life is morally transformed and you live such a morally rigorous and good life. He was a a proponent of of the perfectionist school, okay? Okay. Um, actually, the preparationist school, I should take that back, because remember the preparationist school, and very radical kind of moralism. And that's the sort of thing that where Puritanism gets its bad name when you hear, oh, he's being puritanical. Right? That, that was that strain of Puritanism. Okay. Then there were people like Anne Hutchinson who got you know, chased out of Massachusetts, but her statue's there in you know, Harvard Square today. Um, Anne Hutchinson who said, well, there are no tests. It's just this, your radical subjective sense of faith and it's total antinomianism. So you had the antinomian response. Then you had somebody like Jonathan Edwards that said, well, the way you discern the work of the Spirit in your life is because of your religious affections. You have your, your emotional life has been transformed and that's discernible to you. You wrote a book called Religious Affections. And so there are all these different points of view within Protestantism and how do you know you got born again? Eventually what happens when you get to the 18th century George Whitfield, the great revivals, is that the, the, the litmus test for being born again is that you have a conversion experience. But you have to, it takes you to the 18th century before that becomes the defining characteristic. The idea of a conversion experience identifying regeneration, that's an 18th century Puritan development. In the 19th century, so the Second Great Awakening, you have a further development, and that's the idea that you can manufacture a conversion experience through psychological techniques like an altar call. Okay. Right? And so the modern evangelical emphasis on like, hey, come to the front of the church and pray to receive Christ, Mm -hmm. and you'll be born again. I want you to see how that is a development from Calvinism to Puritanism to revivalism to to Arminian revivalism as it was represented by somebody like Charles Finney, Mm -hmm. right? And the reason I'm giving you this whole history is that Many Protestants who pick up John's gospel and they say, well, you know, have you been born again? They read that and they interpret it through the lens of their experience in their churches and their tradition. And they just assume that Jesus is talking about what they do on Sunday morning, that he's saying, hey, you know, come for the altar call and pray to receive me and believe in me for salvation and you'll be saved. That's just obviously what John's talking about. What I want you to understand is that view of being born again is something that developed over time within Protestantism, but we don't find it fully formed really until the 19th century. So for for 1,500 years throughout the world, everyone who read these texts saw them the same way, and that was to be born again by water and the Spirit is to be born again in the sacrament of baptism. 
Now, if you want to see an article that I wrote on this very topic, because you said Catholics don't talk about this much, I- I'm talking about it Tom blue in the face, okay? <laughs> um, I wrote an article for the website called communion.com. The title of the article is, Have You Been Born Again? Catholic Reflections on a Protestant Doctrine, or How Calvin's View of Salvation Destroyed His Doctrine of the Church, by David mm-hmm. Anders, Dr. David Anders, Have You Been Born Again? Called the Communion website. Go read it. You'll get a, a lengthy discussion of the history of the doctrine of regeneration as it developed from Scripture and the Catholic tradition through Calvinism into modern evangelicalism. A couple of excellent resources for you there, Internet. Thanks so much for your call from West Virginia. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Oscar, a first-time caller from Virginia, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Oscar, what's on your mind today, sir? Oscar in oh, yes. Virginia. Yes. Call Go right yeah, ahead. Yes. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was uh, so my my question is about um, the need to believe in personal prayer or particular prayers of petition uh, in order to become a Catholic. And so I'm um, myself. I'm an agnostic. I uh, have uh, dabbled to read a lot about um, in terms of like Stoic philosophy and such. And uh, I used to be a Christian years ago, but after um, some time spent in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and a few family tragedies. Uh, during which I was, um, you know, had no shortage of um, many prayers of petition. I felt very kind of heartbroken and foolish at the end of most of it. And um, uh, since then, I've started to come back to um, some semblance of faith. And I've, um, and so while the, a lot of the theology and the, the doctrines, I don't really have much of a problem with, um, and even praying for uh, courage to accept God's will. Um, I have a, I, I can even come over to that, but where I often struggle is making um, prayers of petitions for particularly those who are um, close to me or my friends, and uh, seeing them go through hard times, and um, any uh, guidance on that or any thoughts on that I think would be very appreciated. Oh man, I totally want to take you out to lunch, man. This is the <laughs> kind of call that I love, because I relate so profoundly to everything that you have said, to every single thing that you have said. And I would like to suggest to you that your disillusionment is not at all a problem. And you shouldn't see it as a problem. You should see it as a stage in the development of faith. And and to substantiate that, I, I want to point out to you that doubt about God and his willingness to answer prayer is a biblical sentiment and if you've never read Psalm 88, go read Psalm 88. This is a guy who gave his life to God, and God returned the favor by doing seemingly absolutely nothing for him. Um, and the, the prayer ends a, in a lament, which is that you're absent, you're gone, you're not here, you've taken away from me every friend and neighbor, and my one companion is darkness, amen. Signing off, psalmist, right? Yeah, and so yeah. the sentiment that you've expressed is woven throughout the Bible, right? So I, I, I commend you for your intellectual and spiritual honesty, and I don't in any respect regard that as a bad thing. Um, secondly, some of the most celebrated saints in the Catholic tradition have experienced exactly what you're experiencing, and worse. Um, Mother Teresa, who is probably the most famous saint of the 20th century, we now know from her, 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 her posthumous writings, posthumously published writings, I should say, to her spiritual director— had a hard time believing that there was, in fact, a God. So someone that the Church regards as an exemplary saint, 
lived a very lengthy period of time in grave doubt about whether there was even a God, and if there was a God, whether he cared a fig about Mother Teresa. Um, Therese of Lisieux, probably the most popular saint in the 20th century, though not herself a 20th century figure, exact same thing. And I could go on and on with examples. So nothing shameful about what you've experienced. Secondly, man, am I glad you've migrated to Stoicism, right? Uh, I myself am deeply interested in Epictetus and Seneca um, and Marcus Aurelius. Uh, I, I love the literature. I've read a lot of the secondary literature. If you've never read Pierre Hadot, What is Ancient Philosophy? I strongly commend to you the writings of Pierre Hadot. Um, I recently was reading a book by Christelle Veillard, if you happen to read French, on the breath of reason and the Stoic challenge. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a great literature. Uh, it's very applicable to one's Christian faith. And in fact, the fathers of the church uh, adapted a great deal of Stoicism into Catholic monastic theology and Catholic monastic philosophy. So, um, so uh, famously, Evagrius Ponticus, who was the great 4th century Egyptian theologian of monasticism, his entire spiritual program is a kind of, uh, is a kind of transplanted Stoicism into the life of the Christian monk, and traditions like uh, the, um, uh, the Seven Deadly Sins, it's really part of the Catholic patrimony, mm-hmm. are, are pretty much a transplant from the Stoic idea of the bad thoughts, Right, that the the kinds of afflictive emotions and so forth that that war against one's peace of mind, those kinds of concepts, Avigris just borrows them. Um, so what is his name? Sobrani wrote a Gifford uh, dissertation, Gifford address on that exact. I think it's called you know the emotions in Stoic and early Christian literature, or something to that effect. Right. Um, uh, there's another book I want to recommend to you by Joseph Wen. It's a Vietnamese Wen, N G U Y E N, Jesuit theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, called apatheia in the Christian tradition. Apatheia, of course, being the Stoic idea idea of dispassion that becomes so integral to uh, the Catholic idea of uh, moral development. Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises, the doctrine of indifferentia, is, a, is another version of the Stoic doctrine of apatheia. So, so if you, your interest in Stoicism may very well be a kind of backdoor into a whole branch of Catholic spirituality and philosophy and mysticism that you've never considered before, right? And so my guess is, if you're brought up in the Catholic faith and parish life, you got a version of Catholicism in which things like Evagrius Ponticus and, and, uh, and, and you know, Clement of Alexandria and the Cappadocian Fathers uh, was probably entirely absent. And, and so your primary mode of thinking about prayer was petitionary prayer, and this whole aspect of monastic practice and monastic spirituality, which is deeply Stoic, uh, was was gone. I mean, I'm suggesting we need to bring that stuff into your understanding of Catholicism. So, uh, on petitionary prayer specifically, uh, Saint Augustine of Hippo, uh, his letter—I think it's letter 130, it could be 120, could be 130. It's one of those, I believe. It's the letter to Proba. Um, gives you a treatise on Christian prayer that um, could almost have been written by a Stoic. And and what Augustine says, essentially, is that all Christian prayer, petitionary or otherwise, resolves or must resolve more or less to the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And if you look at the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, you will see how they are—they really revolve around questions of one's interior life. 
I mean, the you know, strength to resist evil. Um, you know, that, that God's will might be done on earth as it is in, in heaven is another way of asking that my will be brought into alignment with the will of God, which, of course, is a Stoic principle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the petition for one's daily bread could just as easily be re- understood as a petition that I may be satisfied with my daily bread as a sufficient basis for living a humane life. I mean, so many of these can be read in a psychological way. Mm-hmm. Without, without believing that they're really about, say, moving the cosmos to accommodate my imagination. And the way that most people experience petitionary prayer is that I have something that I want. You know, I want to pass the test or get the girl or win the car, and then I tell God what I want, and then wait for God to deliver the goods. And Augustine tells us that's the wrong way to think about petitionary prayer. Mm-hmm. And then if you read the great mystical writers of the tradition— uh, you might be, say, Maximus's Hundred Chapters on Love, or you read um, Teresa's Interior Castle, or, you know, John's Ascent of Mount Carmel, um, or uh, Climacus's Ladder of Monks. So you name it. You pick any of these great classics of the Christian mystical tradition. One thing that you're not going to find, you're not going to find in them a manual, you know, for how how to get God to do your will, which is the way, again, most people think of petitionary prayer. This is This is my attempt to bend the mind of God to my desires. That's not what you're going to find. What you find is the exact opposite. That mode of prayer is all about bending my will into accord with God's perfect will. And coming to imitate the character of Jesus who said, not my will but thine be done, or the Blessed Virgin who said, be it done to me according to thy word. And so, you know, where where I think Christianity would differ from Stoicism on a couple of points is, is one, is that the Stoic providence is is an impersonal providence. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the regularity and the order and the intelligibility of nature to which I have to conform myself. And the Christian tradition would agree with all that with the caveat that it's also a benevolent deity who does so for the sake of my salvation, right? That, that, there's, there's, that same regularity is there with a benevolent providence behind it. And, of course, the person of Jesus plays quite heavily into the interpretation of the meaning of suffering and the possibility of redemption, and, uh, and while the Stoics had a, a lovely doctrine, kind of universalism in their understanding of reason and, and the rationality of human persons, um, they, they can't hold a candle to the Christian tradition in terms of the dignity with which we regard all persons, regardless of how rational they are, right? So you're not going to find the Stoics going to, you know, the same kind of lengths on behalf of the poor or the uh-huh. slaves and things of that sort, which in Christianity was, was quite revolutionary, in, uh, in ancient civilization. So lot to talk about there, lots of good stuff. Um, and, uh, and I just encourage you to just like keep going on your journey. It sounds to me like you've, you've had the kind of life-altering experiences that really stand at the beginning, not the end of the quest for wisdom. And up until this point, you've just been, like all of us, you're just kind of playing around. And now you're forced with these radical existential questions where you are, you're looking at, okay, now I might really be able to do some incredible things in my own spiritual journey as I have, you know, we're not, we're not play acting Christianity anymore. Yeah. We're, we got to get down to the, to, the, to the meat of how do I really confront these profound existential struggles that really are the subject of so much Holy Scripture. And of course, you know, Job is all about the, the, the impenetrability mm-hmm. right, of these kinds of mysteries in the face of, you know, a hidden God. If you're not also familiar with 
the whole tradition of apophatic theology, which is the unknowableness of God, best represented by Dionysius the Areopagite and his mystical theology. Heady stuff, but you need to read it if you're into this kind of thing. Uh, he's more Neoplatonic than Stoic, but nevertheless, very important part of the tradition. So I've just laid a lot on you, lots of authors, lots of books. Um, and so you might want to come back and re-listen to the podcast. Yeah. And uh, But I just I want you to just know I'm just profoundly sympathetic to your point of view. And I mean, I think I've experienced the same thing. I struggle with the same questions. These are some of the resources, some of the people, some of the ways of addressing that have been profitable for me, and I hand them on to you. But by all means, call us back and go read yeah. some of these books, and then call me back and let's talk some more. Oscar, uh, you are in our prayers. You know what Mother Angelica would say, David. Get cracking. Get cracking. Get yeah. cracking. Appreciate your call from Virginia. It's called to communion here on EWTN. We're going to try to get to as many calls as we can. By the way, if you are on hold, and we've got four people on hold right now, if we don't get to your question, uh, hang in there because David is going to do an extra hour here on the radio filling in for uh, Father Tregilio. That's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, don't go away. Call to communion here on EWTN tonight on EWTN News Nightly at 9 p.m. Eastern with Tracy Sable. Tonight, the Biden administration pushes for more funding for the war in Ukraine, plus a closer look at the fallout from that controversial service inside one of the best-known cathedrals in the United States. If you heard about that over the weekend, what a dreadful situation that was. They even had to have a massive reparation. Anyway, they're going to unpack all that for you tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Let's go now to Paula in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Paula. What's on your mind today? Hi, uh, Dr. Anders. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, yeah, in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, where it's referencing the brothers of Jesus, um, I was speaking with a Protestant Bible study leader, and his belief is that these are biological brothers of Jesus, and that specifically that Mary had other children. And he claims that, um, to support that, that the Greek word for brother uh, translates to of the same womb. Um, have you heard this, and can you expand on this? Yeah, he absolutely has no idea how exegesis works. <laughs> All right. Um, and so so I have personally never considered the question of the etymology of the word. All right. And that's what this is. This is a claim from etymology. But uh, but so he's a Protestant. He might like this. There's a Protestant biblical scholar named D.A. Carson, who among conservatives is uh, pretty famous. He was a he may still be there. He's a professor, a distinguished research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, my alma mater. Ah. And uh, Carson wrote a very highly regarded book called Exegetical Fallacies. And that is, when you're exegeting the Bible, when you're reading the original Greek text and trying to discern the meaning, what are some pitfalls that you should not fall into? And top of the list is what he calls the etymological fallacy. What is the etymological fallacy? It is the fallacy of assuming that the etymology of a word gives you its meaning. And we all know in English that that's just not the case, mm -hmm. right? That is not the case. Etymology has nothing to do with meaning. It's just, it's, just, it's just antiquarian interest. Where did a word come from? But the meaning of a word is always determined by its use, not by its etymology. And so that's just, that's just really, really bad exegesis. But as to the question of Jesus' brothers and sisters, uh, Scripture is pretty clear. I mean, it, 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 it indicates who these guys are. You can look at the parallel passages in, in, um, in uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 27, John chapter 19, 
And we know that they are the children of Mary, the wife of Clopas, the cousin of the Blessed Virgin. So they are, in fact, his cousins. Regardless of the etymology of the, of the Greek word for brother, the context makes it clear that they are brethren in the extended sense of the term. There you go. Paula, thanks so much for your call. Nancy is in Seattle watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Nancy, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Tom Price and Dr. Anders. I just absolutely loved what you were just speaking about with the gentleman, uh, Dr. Anders. That was so helpful to me as well. And I'm going to, of course, uh, go to the podcast and take notes on everything. Um, my, uh, uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today, uh, for a long, long time, you have, um, I've heard you talk about uh, Father Thomas Dubay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm telling you, I, it's been life-changing for me. I mean, you have been a life-changer for me. But uh, this uh, Thomas Dubay, The Fire Within and You Are Christ, The Charism of Virginity and Celibate Life for Men and Women, uh, this man uh, is so incredible uh, that, I mean, I feel like he reads my mind as I'm reading his, his text, and he's answering everything uh, <laughs> vertically, laterally, um, stoically. Uh, and I feel like I've just gotten immersed for the first time in my life in everything that I wondered about and didn't even know I wondered about, but I was certain that, that I just had found it. it. It's just been transformative so, for me. I really appreciate that. Dubay is just top of the shelf. He is great yeah, stuff, and yeah. I, I miss him. He used to be on the network all the time, has a bunch of fantastic books, and when you his affect always cracks me up because he comes across, you just see him as this lab-coated you know, kind of nerdy scientist <laughs> of the interior life. You know, he, he there wasn't anything winsome about his personality at all, but the clarity of his teaching, and the and the 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 degree of his insight and his knowledge of the texts and his ability to communicate them was just fantastic. And uh, and so, if you guys don't know Thomas Dubay, Father Thomas Dubay, he's in the EWTN audio, uh, uh, video archives, audio lots as of, well, and yeah. audio, lots of good programming he did for the network. And his books, of course, are still in print and and, and perennially valuable. So. Yeah, he presents uh, the Carmelite uh, system, the Carmelite spirituality, in layman's terms. It's very accessible, uh, but very deep. And so, absolutely, go lay hold of uh, Thomas Dubay. Fire Within is one of his seminal works. Nancy, thanks so much for your call. Uh, Jack in Colleen, Texas. Fran in Massachusetts. Please hang in there because, as I mentioned, David is going to hang around for another hour, filling in for uh, Father John Tregilio on Open Line. Dr. David Anders, thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern, for our live broadcast. Check out the podcast anytime at EWTN.com. On behalf of our great team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks so much for watching and listening. See you next time. God bless.